Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, uh, welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up once again with his step on obedience, number four. And this follows, if you remember, on the first three, which were considered the break from the world. So renunciation, detachment, exile, and obedience is seen as flowing from exile itself, that having stripped oneself uh, of everything in the world uh, that one might be attached to, that the, 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 the next thing, and perhaps the most important within the monastic life, but spiritual life as a whole, because it conforms us to Christ, is obedience, a letting go of one's self-will, detaching oneself from one's own will, and as we have seen and we'll see as we make our way through some of the stories, it's not an easy thing to do, uh, even for the, the, the most seasoned of monks and those who have lived in community for a long time. And, uh, and then seeking to, to think about how, what does this mean for us as Christian men and women, as we seek to conform ourselves to Christ, seek to be obedient to God's will, to our own baptismal vows or any other vows that we make within, within this life. And, uh, and so how do we conform ourselves to Christ is ultimately uh, the question that, that we need to put to ourselves. So tonight we're on page 70 of the text, paragraph number nine. He writes, he who submits himself passes sentence on himself. If his obedience for the Lord's sake is perfect, even if it does not seem perfect, he will escape judgment. But if he does his own will in some things, then although he considers himself obedient, he lays the burden on his own shoulders. It is good if the superior does not cease reproving him. But if he is silent, then I do not know what to say. Those who submit themselves in the Lord in simplicity run the good race without provoking the cunning of the demons against themselves by their exacting investigations. So a lot in this little paragraph, number nine, again, for those who just joined on page 70, uh, he who submits himself passes sentence on himself. And so we are making a judgment when we are submitting our will to another uh, of a kind of lack of trust or distrust in our, our own will, opinion, judgment. We know what we're capable of in our own poverty, that we often don't see things clearly. In fact, it's one of the uh, results of the fall, concupiscence, weakness of will, but also darkness of intellect, the darkening of the eye of the soul or the eye of the heart. And so to submit oneself freely to another is the acknowledgement of what we struggle with on the deepest level, our inability to see the truth, but also our, our unwillingness, even when we do see it, to, to embrace it fully. And so those who enter into the monastic life, but those who embrace the Christian life in particular, uh, elevate obedience uh, in terms of uh, it being a virtue and its importance for the spiritual life. Ab adere it comes from, which means to listen. And uh, so we are seeking to listen on the deepest levels of our being to what God is telling us to do, guiding us to do, especially through the voice of conscience that is formed over the course of time uh, through our embrace of the sacraments, but also through study of scripture, 
the fathers and the rest of the ascetical practices that we seek to sensitize our conscience over time and to, to be obedient to it, to it, the, the voice of conscience that God has given to us in order to keep us along the path that leads to him. Uh, some of the things that stood out for me in this paragraph uh, is that, you know, one who's embraced obedience fully, even if he, he lives his life imperfectly, is still going to be acknowledged for that obedient spirit that often the weaknesses and the flaws that we, we have come from precisely that human weakness and uh, or or our sin. But if we seek to live in the spirit of obedience and submit ourselves to the judgment of another and even bring those things freely uh, before him and accept whatever judgment that might be given, then that lifts the burden of those things off of us with a kind of immediacy and allows us to run, as he tells us, the, the, the great race of the spiritual life or of this life with a freedom. We're unimpeded in that regard. We're not carrying the, the burden of our own sin. So we're not running with a heavy, heavy tread uh, one sort of thinks, can think of uh, St. Peter in particular running to the empty tomb, you know, carrying sort of the weight of his own betrayal of the Lord, uh, outrun by John or the beloved disciple. And one has to think it's because his conscience was weighing heavy upon him uh, through what had taken place in his denial of the Lord. And so obedience works to free us uh, from this as swiftly as possible. Uh, and if not, he says, we lay the burden on our own shoulders. We are taking it back upon ourselves. <clears throat> uh, he directs some of his thought to the superior here. And uh, I think this is important in our day too, uh, both I think within the family life, uh, but also in religious communities, formation within seminaries. Uh, he says, uh, if the it is a good thing if the superior it is good if the superior does not cease reproving him, but if he is silent, then I do not know what to say. That if the one who is given the care of souls and is responsible for guiding and directing them and even correcting them on occasions on occasion remains silent, does nothing uh, despite what he sees, then he says, I, I don't know what to say to that that a person has placed himself under obedience, trusting that he would receive exactly that, the guidance that he needs in order to remain faithful. And if this isn't done out of sort of kind of a false charity or timidity, uh, then he's failing in his role uh, to guide and direct the one in his care. And so in our own day, I think we've, I think something of our separation maybe from the ascetical tradition and uh, reading things like this from Climacus and others and seeing the importance for the spiritual life and how it does conform us to Christ. If we aren't immersed in this regularly, uh, then I think we could see it as not applying to us and maybe applying to religious, but I think uh, especially when we prize our freedom and it's usually freedom from things, uh, from the certain demands, rather than freedom to obey God and to, to live our life fully, 
then uh, I think we can find ourselves simply wandering through life and not really be having our minds and our hearts be sh shaped at all. And uh, if we move away from the study of the scriptures or from the fathers or reading the lives of the saints, uh, something like obedience seems perhaps more and more foreign to us. And so we are going to be awakened, perhaps rather rudely here, as we go through uh, some of the stories that are coming up in the next sections of, of monks who lived this, but also the fruit that, that it, it bore within their lives. Uh, it also helps us to avoid the cunning, he tells us, of demons in their investigation of us, that they are exacting, that they are looking for the, the flaws, the weaknesses within us, not, not only to trip us up, but to accuse us, to lead us then into a kind of despondency. And so if we, we are not holding ourselves uh, to our commitment to obedience, and if a superior isn't, then keep, keeping a close eye and guiding and correcting, we can be guaranteed that the demons are, are there and they are investigating closely, uh, both to see how they could lead us further astray, but also, as I said, where they can lead us into a kind of sadness or despondency. Because part of the correction of a superior is also to lift up the one in his, in his care, you know, to apply healing balm, to encourage, as we, we have heard. So it's not meant to infantilize, it's not meant to crush, but rather to, to raise a person up so that they could enter into the good fight again. Okay. Any comments on this little paragraph? Okay, number 10. First of all, let us make our confession to our good judge and to him alone. But if he orders, then to all. Wounds displayed in public will not grow worse, but will be healed. So our first responsibility, of course, is confession. And what they're speaking of here isn't necessarily sacramental confession. For the monk, it would be to one spiritual elder who might not necessarily be a priest but to acknowledge those faults, failures, sins uh, without hiding anything. And if he orders then to all to publicly, publicly display it, it, is to heal it. And we see some uh, vestiges of this in religious communities where they would have something called the chapter of faults where one would freely accuse oneself of how uh, one has failed to live the role and or where there's been a breakdown of charity or some disobedience in the sense of not carrying out one's responsibilities. And it would be this through this regular practice of a chapter of faults uh, where one would acknowledge those things that again, one's conscience would be refined as well as one's attentiveness to the role and sadly, I think many religious communities moved away from that. And I think part of it is, is that maybe they lost sight of the reason for doing so, which I think we find within the fathers. And so often it became more, I think, uh, something that led to humiliation rather than to humility and would lift a person up and strengthen them. But if you would live in a, a good community where that was practiced well, and even with a spirit of joy, as well as humility, then it could be something 
very fruitful. And uh, many communities would even take uh, the discipline, you know, which would be some form of penance uh, after the, that chapter of faults or, or it would be applied to them by the superior. And, you know, so not necessarily, necessarily something severe, but something that would help correct whatever it might be. If it was pride, then some act of humility or service to the community or the individual uh, that they mistreated or spoke harshly to. Okay. So, uh, anybody have any questions before? Because we're moving into a rather lengthy se section of illustrations, which John often will do. And uh, I'm looking forward to going through these with you because, as I mentioned in past groups on the latter, I had to edit uh, because I was limited to uh, the school year. And, uh, and so, to actually spend the time going through some of these illustrative stories will be a good thing to see how it was actually lived and the particular fruits. Okay. About a thief who repented. Terrible indeed was the judgment of a good judge and shepherd, which I once saw in a monastery. For while I was there, it happened that a thief sought for admission to the monastic life. And that most excellent pastor and physician ordered him to take seven days of complete rest, just to see the kind of life in the place. When the week had passed, the pastor called him and asked him privately, would you like to live with us? And when he saw that he agreed to this with all sincerity, he asked him what evil he had done in the world. And when he saw that he readily confessed everything, he tried him still further and said, I want you to tell this in the presence of all the brethren, but he really did hate his sin and scorning all shame, without the least hesitation, he promised to do it. And if you like, he said, I will tell it to the middle of the city of Alexandria. So, you know, we see this holy shepherd and this will come up over and over again as well uh, th throughout the, the step about shepherds who again, have the capacity of discernment and really can see what's going to be fruitful, not only for a particular individual, but for the whole community to witness. And we'll see in this story how powerful and how important it was for the community. Even when John asked him about this, isn't this a bit harsh that you would push somebody uh, to go further and further in terms of the acknowledgement of their sin in such a public way? Uh, but it does bear great fruit, and the uh, superior is described by John as a pastor and physician. And again, that, that comes up frequently within the text, and as I mentioned before, among the Eastern writers of seeing the, the, the church as a hospital, the sacraments as uh, sort of the, the healing balm that we need, that provides the grace that we need. But we find it also in the actions of these elders or superiors uh, in their discernment, that they act like physicians and they know how, how it is to correct or to heal without destroying the spirit of the one who's in their care. And so the shepherd gathered all the she his sheep in the church to the number of 230. And during divine service, for it was Sunday, after the reading of the gospel, 
he introduced this irreproachable convict. He was dragged by several of the brethren who gave him moderate blows. His hands were tied behind his back. He was dressed in a hair shirt. His head was sprinkled with ashes. All were astonished at the sight. And immediately a woeful cry rang out for no one knew what was happening. Then when the thief approached at the doors of the church, that holy superior who had such a love for souls said to him in a loud voice, stop, you're not worthy to enter here. I think most of us at this point were, would have bolted to the door <laughs> for the door. Uh, you know, the moment somebody bound us and gave us a moderate blow, uh, whatever that might have been, uh, I think that would have been enough for, for all of us. Dumbfounded by the voice of the shepherd coming from the sanctuary, for he thought, as he afterwards assured us with oaths, that he had heard not a human voice but thunder. He instantly fell on his face, trembling and shaking all over with fear. As he lay on the ground and moistened the floor with his tears, this wonderful physician, using all means for his salvation and wishing to give to all an example of saving and effectual humility, again exhorted him in the presence of all to tell in detail what he had done. And with terror, he confessed one after another all his sins which revolted every ear, not only the sins of flesh, natural and unnatural with rational beings and with animals, but even poisoning, murder and many others, which it is not lawful to hear or commit to writing. And when he had finished his confession, the shepherd at once allowed him to be given the habit and numbered among the brethren. So it even gets worse than the moderate blows that uh, before all of them, after the gospel. And so it becomes like a homily. And one has to imagine that that's how it's being used as a moment, not only to heal this young monk, who was also a thief and had led a dissolute life, but also to heal the members of his own community, which he had begun to see certain things uh, within them as well. So, you know, all were amazed, including John Climacus at the witness of this. Amazed by the wisdom of that holy man, I asked him when we were alone, why did you make such an extraordinary show? The true physician replied for two reasons. Firstly, in order to deliver the, the penitent himself from future shame by present shame. And it really did that, Brother John. So to free him in a complete way uh, through shame, from the shame of his sins and the life that he had led, that of course there was something deeply shaming about this, being exposed uh, in the full light of the truth, acknowledging everything that he had done before all of the community and even bearing their uh, uh, kind of, uh, disgust over it brings about this terrible shame, but the ultimate goal there was to bring him freedom from shame altogether, that he would carry nothing into the monastic life that would be an impediment to his freely running the race of faith and the life of virtue, not carrying the burden of past sins within him into this life, that he wants him to be fully free and healed of what had afflicted him for 
so many years. And so the desperate measures come because of the, the, the of how he had led his life. And th there was a need for a deep healing here and the skill of such a physician. He goes on to say, for he did not rise from the floor until he was granted remission of all his sins. And do not doubt this, for one of the brethren who was there confided to me saying, I saw some terrible holding some, someone terrible holding a pen and writing tablet. And as the prostrate man told each sin, he crossed it out with a pen. And this is likely for it says, I said, I will confess mine iniquities before the Lord against myself. And thou forgavest the ungodliness of my heart. Secondly, because there are others in the brotherhood who have unconfessed sins, and I want to induce them to confess too, for without this, no one will obtain forgiveness. So an interesting thing that, you know, as he had mentioned earlier, that the demons will most certainly investigate. And so one of the brothers sees a dark figure, a terrifying figure, marking off each of the things that were, uh, that were confessed. But the second reason is that the other brothers had unconfessed sins, that the abbot could see, the superior could see that there was something that was afflicting the community as a whole. And so not only was this thief in need of healing, but the entire community. And so he uses the, the deep humility of this thief uh, and profound humility in order to be able then to uh, offer that healing balm to the rest of the community as well. And so, you know, obviously, this isn't an example for, I think, modern day superiors to follow, and uh, nor something that I would suggest that one of us would do here, uh, or, you know, uh, under the guidance of a priest say, you know, have him make us confess our sins before the whole congregation. I think there would be a certain danger in doing that, as we've heard, you know, from the Evergatinos to do this indiscriminately could bring great harm. But what it speaks to, I think, is how powerful the virtue of obedience is, but also humility, truthful living, you know, is this healing balm that frees us and his obedience already at the beginning of his life, even before he's accepted as a monk, uh, allows him to enter into that life and not just the monastic life, but the life of faith free. So obedience ultimately is something that brings true freedom. Up to that, he had been bound by his sins in a terrible way that led him from one to another, and each, you know, from the sounds of it, worse than the one before. But this obedience gives him a freedom that was undreamt of, but also an obedience, a freedom that would spread to the rest of the community, draw them along the path, the same kind of path. Any thoughts so far? Yes, Ren. Without this type of public and total confession, is there any way to attain to a similar level of freedom? I feel like so many carry certain sins as secrets from all but their confessor and maybe spouse. Yeah, 
you know, I've often thought about that and certainly, and, you know, reading this, the writings of the fathers, but I think being exposed a little bit more now to the Eastern liturgies, um, you know, the expressions of uh, penance and sorrow for one's sins and having them be concrete and tangible, uh, you know, through, throughout the liturgy, there are so many times where one uh, cries out or chants, Lord have mercy, or uh, the priest every time, you know, as he is uh, consecrating even, will make a profound bow, uh, have, be merciful to me a sinner, and similarly, you know, when he receives and the long I posted today, the, the long prayer that is said before one uh, receives Holy Communion, said by both the priest and the congregation, it's extraordinarily beautiful. And so within the liturgy itself, we find the spirit of, I think, what we're reading here uh, reflected in it, that the spiritual life and the life of worship are intimately tied together. And so our understanding of our need for obedience, for humility, is in some way to be, as I think you're pointing out, enacted in our life. And we have so minimized that, or it's reduced simply to the confessional, which certainly is the most powerful means and of our receiving that grace and forgiveness. Uh, but I think we see within the scripture and also within the lives of the saints and the fathers, this call to seek the forgiveness of others and to acknowledge freely one's sins before others. Uh, and again, within these, they'll have forgiveness Sunday. And I, I don't know if, the, is that one of the, maybe one, Father Miron, I think is here, can help me out. Is that the first uh, weekend in, in Lent, the first Sunday in Lent, or is it prior even to Lent? where? The first Sunday of Great Lent, okay, right, uh, where one will ask forgiveness from others within the congregation, that as you enter into the holy season, a penitential season, the way that you step into it is this acknowledgement of your own sinfulness and the need to seek the forgiveness of those within your own community. And again, it sort of breaks down this individualistic approach to something like the acknowledgement of our sins, uh, because we, we have privatized it within the confessional, and that should be a place, I think, where a person can unburden themselves, but also a place that Christ himself has given to us, uh, to know that in the most tangible way, but it's not the only way, and I think sort of embracing something of the spirit that we see articulated here uh, but also within the liturgy, as I said, is a way that we deepen uh, this, uh, you know, spirit of obedience and humility within our hearts. And so confession should lead and both should feed and strengthen each other. So our going to confession regularly then, should, you know, feed into this penitential spirit, this spirit of humility, where, that allows us to freely acknowledge the, uh, in our day-to-day -day life that, you know, this is done at the first Sunday of Lent, but there's nothing that prevents us from doing that on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, say, as I, I think you, I don't know if you mentioned here, like with one's spouse or one's community members, or uh, even with, with those with whom one would work, I think, uh, 
to humble oneself, uh, you know, where it's appropriate, you know, before others when, uh, you know, tempers are lost or something like that, that breaks down sort of the capacity to engage each other with civility to, you know, find again that uh, ability to engage each other graciously. Uh, and so to be able to practice this on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I think is fundamental to the Christian life because we often will hold on to anger and resentment and it will gnaw away at us as well as we'll hold on to other failings and sins, and it will eat away at us. And I think we want to be able to seek ways to apply this balm that uh, is given to this thief uh, to ourselves. And so I think finding an elder or a confidant, you know, one spouse, spouse confessor, and uh, again, liturgically to enter into that as fully as we can. I think the fasting periods too that have dropped off you know or the practice of fasting again you know the the penitential sense here of it uh, I'm thinking in particular not that uh, it's the only way we've talked about it but I think there is this sense of preparing oneself uh, for holy seasons or for holy feast like often leading up to major feasts there will be a period of fasting uh, and so, what is it? I think it's 150 some fast days uh, within the East. And, you know, in the West, there's no reason for us not to do that. And we can sort of take hold of the tradition of fasting uh, and try to, again, incorporate it within our life in order to deep, deepen, again, this spirit of, of humility and obedience. Because the fasting is the humbling of mind and body as well. And I think it increases our capacity then uh, to embrace something of the spirit of this step. Good question. Any others, any other comments? All right. So, I saw much else too that was admirable and worth remembering with that ever memorable pastor and his flock. And a large part of it, I shall try to bring to your knowledge also, for I stayed a considerable time with him following their manner of life and was greatly astonished to see how those earth dwellers were imitating heavenly beings or imi yes, imitating heavenly beings. So they had become, you know, through the, these practices and also through their obedience, like angels, you know, unimpeded uh, by the weight and the burden of their sins. And uh, so it affected the entire community. And this again, I think is where you see the importance of the, the wisdom of a superior and praying for a superior. And in praying for priests too, I think, and anyone I think who has the care of souls or praying, you know, if you're parents to pray for each other, you know, uh, because of the importance of this role of the care of souls. 
and we can see how important it was. Now, what would this thief's life been like without the wisdom of this physician, this one who could see his sin and be able to heal him from it, as well as heal his community, and how that transformed the entire community eventually, made them like angels. What is the lack of obedience, or what does the lack of humility do to a community over the course of time? We're going to see the exact opposite. You know, as pride increases, then, you know, there becomes this acting out and aggression and tearing down of the community. Okay. In this flock, they were united by an indissoluble bond of love. And what was still more wonderful, it was free from all familiarity and idle talk. More than anything else, they tried not to wound a brother's conscience in any way. And if anyone ever showed hatred to another, the shepherd put him in the isolation monastery, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, like a convict. And once when one of the brethren spoke ill of his neighbor to the shepherd, the holy man at once ordered him to be driven out saying, I cannot allow a visible as well as an invisible devil in the monastery. Extraordinary little saying here, but you know, someone who within the community, who uh, spoke ill of a member, uh, he knows, the superior knows what effect that that could have over the course of time if un unchecked. And so if there's an individual in a community who's entrenched in a kind of pride and arrogance and relating to other, where there is this lack of charity, then it's going to affect the entire community over the course of time. And so the superior either has to find a, a way of offering you know, some sort of healing uh, and even a stricter kind of penance, which he refers to a, a monastery that is like a prison, a penitentiary, you know, where a, a greater kind of penance is taken on. You know, if, if there is nothing like that that, that works, uh, then the individual is not going to be able to survive in the community, but could bring the community great harm. Sort of what we hear in, in the scriptures where fraternal correction is brought up and that first an individual is taken by himself, and then if there isn't any change, bring another and talk to him together, and then before the entire church community, and if that fails, then the, the teaching is to hand him over to Satan. And uh, in, in other words, allow him to experience the consequence of that sin in order, with the hope ultimately that there will be an awakening. You know, when one experiences the true poverty of it, that there will be something that will turn them back to the community. But I think when, when a community is faced with something like this, where a person is deeply entrenched, that sometimes there isn't something that can bring healing at a given point. But it's beautiful, I think, how he describes the, the community here that has been so formed by this, that there's an avoidance of a kind of idle discussion um, and, you know, we've talked about this in some of the other groups, that there can be a, a critical spirit that infects uh, communities or, you know, large parts of the church, even where, 
you know, there's a constant focus in a negative way upon things that people see as being problematic or wrong or insufficient. And so there is this lens through which they view everything that creates a kind of heaviness of spirit that can pull a whole community down or darken their vision so much that they, they begin to go off the wrong path, that their uh, pride creeps in and, air can, and an arrogance uh, creeps in where there is only that critical spirit and no love and generosity that seeks to pray for those who might be suffering or have gone astray and looks at others with any kind of charity. And here he says that there was nothing of that at all and that they would be careful not to wound the conscience of another in any way. And uh, I think that's an important thing as, as well in terms of when we think about our own demeanor and the way that we engage a, others throughout the course of the day, that part of our watchfulness of heart is to watch how we talk to people and how we engage them. And I think we've even, you know, in our lesser moments and, you know, because of even say of something like fatigue or whatever it might be, uh, you know, we can snap uh, at another, or we can say something off color, or something that might wound the conscience uh, of another, or we could speak of somebody else within the community in such a way that it diminishes the opinion of another of them. And, uh, and all these are ways of wounding the conscience. So within this community that lived in this profound obedience, spirit of obedience, he did not see any of that. In fact, this vigilance in trying to protect it. Ren, you had another thought? Is that, or were you just sharing that? Okay. This also perfectly complements what we discussed in the Evergatinas on Monday. The simple, very easy way that idle conversation becomes evil conversation. And that's something that needs to be avoided, even in the very beginning, when it seems really harmless. There's nothing harmless about what is idle. That's right. And I think, you know, the investigation, again, when we go back to that phrase, the demons investigating, these are the things that they can be attentive to when they see this kind of idle spirit. It can be relatively benign in the beginning, but it can eventually become something that is much more destructive. I saw among these fathers, uh, things that were truly profitable and admirable. I saw a brotherhood gathered and united in the Lord with a wonderful life of action and divine vision. For they were so occupied with divine thoughts and they exercised themselves so much in good deeds that there was scarcely any need for the superior to remind them of anything. But if their own goodwill, I'm sorry, but of their own goodwill, they aroused one another to divine vigilance. For they had certain holy and divine exercises that were defined, studied, and fixed. If in the absence of the superior, one of them began to use abusive language or criticize people or simply talk idly, some other brother by a secret nod reminded him of this and quietly put a stop to it. But if by chance the brother did not notice, then one who reminded him would make a prostration and retire. And the incessant and ceaseless topic of their conversation, when it was necessary to say anything, was the remembrance of death and the thought of eternal judgment. 
So it's interesting, you know, that they, even when the superior was away, that they had been so formed in the spirit of obedience, that even when the superior was away, that they gave care to each other to protect each other from falling away from it. And so if something would come up in idle talk or whatever it might be, a simple nod from one of the brothers would often be enough to draw a person back to consciousness, as it were, to the awareness of what they were doing. And, uh, and then also the divine exercises that they embraced too. And, you know, I mentioned chapter faults and things like that, that their daily practices and parts of their role, things that they would do, were all meant to heighten, again, the watchfulness that they had within them. And the way that they went about their work, everything would be guarded and protected uh, from falling into a kind of, of idle spirit. Um, and then uh, uh, sort of the interesting thing, when that guidance fails again, where a nod or even a more direct uh, kind of correction fails, then the brother would prostrate and leave that the action of humbling himself before the, the brothers who perhaps were engaged in idle conversation or a critical conversation, that he would make an act of obeisance. He would prostrate himself fully and then retire to his own cell. And, uh, and so hoping that the action itself of removing himself would be something that would be a model to them or again lead to uh, the, the ceasing of what they were doing. And then finally, the remembrance of death and judgment. Again, this for John Climacus, this is a very important thing as it was for all the fathers, but we'll see him write about it in great detail that the frequent rem rem remembrance of death, of our own mortality to the brevity of our life clarifies our vision. And so he'll say in one of the, the later steps that he who remembers death by the hour ceases to sin that if we form our, our, ourselves to remember that, uh, you know, our own mortality, then it's going to keep us focused upon what endures and what is most important. Okay. So any thoughts so far? Okay. Uh, paragraph 16 on page 73. I must not omit to tell you about the wonderful achievement of the baker of that community, seeing that he had attained a, to constant recollection and tears during his service. I asked him to tell me how he came to be granted such a grace. And when I pressed him, he replied, I have never thought that I was serving men, but God. And having judged myself unworthy of all rest by this visible fire, I am unceasingly reminded of the future flame. And so, you know, how is it that he remain, you know, he has this constant flow of tears and is always recollected. His thoughts are always moving toward God. And so the first part is seeing himself as the servant of all the members of his community and seeing, not seeing himself in any way as better than others, but in fact, as unworthy. 
himself even to be a member of the monastery. And so keeping himself in the, the last place, you know, sitting in the last place keeps him in the spirit of recollection. It keeps him in the spirit uh, of humility. Uh, but also, you know, if he's the baker, he's constantly surrounded by fire, uh, the fire of the ovens. And so he says here, you know, that uh, by this visible fire, uh, I judge myself unworthy of all the rest. I'm unceasingly reminded of the future flame. And so the, the flame of purification, the flame of judgment of coming before God in whom there is no sin, that, you know, he uses what is concrete before him, you know, what he sees on a day-to-day -day basis in order to help strengthen him in the spiritual battle. Clever. So this is how we should see the heat in Pittsburgh or Arizona <laughs> uh, these days and not, and not complain about it. It should be our remembrance of death. I'll have to remember that the next divine liturgy when I'm sweating bullets. <laughs> okay. Paragraph 17. Let us hear about another surprising attainment of theirs. For not even in the refractory did they stop noetic activity, but according to a certain custom, these blessed men reminded one another of interior prayer by secret signs and gestures. And they did this not only in the refectory, but at every encounter and gathering. And so not even, uh, not even in the refectory where they're eating, uh, would they let go of this kind of recollection, or he says here, noetic activity. So this activity where we are seeking that internal stillness, uh, through moving from keeping our thoughts simple and directed toward Christ. And so the, even there, they wouldn't use this as a time. You know, certainly all, communities all had periods of recreation where they would, you know, break from the silence and be able to talk with each other. But those who obviously had gone to the desert for the stillness and the silence, that they would seek to maintain that. So during the meals, there would often be uh, readings from the scriptures or a, a spiritual work, uh, but they would maintain this stillness and protect it for each other by not breaking that silence during the meals and even in terms of asking for something. So uh, they would give you know, little hand signals to each other if something was needed. And uh, the Trappists were actually sort of famous for this. And you can find still in some libraries that they had uh, their own kind of sign language uh, that they used. Uh, so if they were, you know, passing down each other down the hallway of the monastery, if they needed to be able to communicate something to another brother, that they had particular hand gestures that they would give uh, in order to communicate what was needed. You know, whether a person was needed somewhere or, or if they needed something in particular that they could communicate that without breaking the silence of the entire monastery. Now, you know, for us who live in the world, certainly there's greater freedom to communicate with each other. But I think what, what this tells us is the value of stillness and trying to protect that for ourselves and for others, that we need that stillness within our life, external stillness in order to foster the internal 
stillness that we were seeking where we can listen to God. And so within our own homes, for example, you know, again, there would be typically greater freedom and communication and one would not want to squelch that which is good and would build up, you know, family life or communities. But I think also cultivating periods of time where silence can be had, where there is nothing on, no radio, no electronics, or anything like that, where there would be stillness within the house, uh, where people could read and or, or pray, or you know, to be able to retreat a little bit within their own homes. And I think this is why in many, uh, and I think this is East and West, but in Eastern Christian homes in particular, that there will be like a prayer corner or even an entire room that's dedicated to prayer, you know, a place where one can go, where there would be an icon, candles, incense, uh, scriptures, where one could go to have this kind of stillness and then return to the family life from that. Uh, so that it would be able, to, you're creating something within the home that would be very much like the monastery or being a church where you're helping to cultivate this stillness for yourself and, and for others. And, uh, you know, I think we've gotten used to constant noise and in our day. And, uh, and so to have a period uh, where we can have silence, like even in the monasteries, like say I had mentioned the Trappists, that they would have certain periods of the day where they could speak to each other or if they're working with each other, but then there would be grand silence from, you know, the end of uh, night, night prayer or Compline all the way through, I think, you know, morning prayer and the, the mass in the morning. And so there would be this fairly large part of the day where there's absolute silence within the monastery. And, uh, and so I think within our own life, we would want to cultivate that where there are times in the day where we have absolute silence. And it's hard, you know, I think with, you know, for me, it would be the phone, you know, to turn the phone off, to set it aside, to go to read, to go pray, uh, to set, set aside things where there is this, you're not going to be distracted uh, by anything and it doesn't take much and uh, where there can be this movement away from from silence because it can be hard for us especially for, if we haven't cultivated it and so to cultivate it means I think to seek something of the simplicity that John sees in this community that they had cultivated a simplicity that then bore this great fruit for them and it altered the way that they treated each other that Henry Nouwen wrote uh, a book where he talks about intimacy and solitude. And he says, even within marriage, you know, for the deepest intimacy to emerge and in any relationship he was saying, but also in marriage, there also has to be silence and solitude that we can't be around each other 24 seven that there has to be this movement away into silence to this communion with God in order that we might then step toward the other 
with greater charity and openness. And uh, so the grace that is gained through that intimacy with God then, then affects our relationship with everybody else. And so with, again, within homes and then with relationships, we, we want to have this balance between solitude and communion of intimacy. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that one communion leads to another, that our communion with God in the silence leads to our communion with others in our life. Okay, any other thoughts? Okay. Uh, number 18. And if one of them committed a fault, he would receive many requests from the brothers to allow them to take the case to the shepherd and bear the responsibility of the punishment and the punishment. That is why this great man, on learning that his disciples did this, inflicted lighter punishments, knowing that the one punished was innocent. And he did not even inquire who had actually sustained the fall. And so again, you know, we see this deep intimacy that begins to emerge within these communities that are living this life, that they so love each other, that they desire to take upon themselves the burden of one another's penances even. And uh, the superior even acknowledging that, then that the, the love, you know, not only lightens the penance that is given, but doesn't inquire. He doesn't search in to who is really deserving of the punishment, and uh, but simply receives then what is offered on behalf of the other. It's quite a beautiful thing. I mean, there's kind of generosity of spirit there towards the other that you want to share in their burden. You want to take upon yourself what they are struggling with. And we've talked about this before, I think in Evergetinos, where you know, the one who has the care of souls taking upon himself penances and various forms of prayer to aid in that healing, that he intercedes on behalf of the one in his care, that he's not a detached kind of physician, but one who's intimately involved in the healing of the one in his care. Number 19, could any hint of idle talk or joking exist among them? If one of them began a dispute with his neighbor, then another passing by assumed the role of penitent and so dissolved the anger. But if he noticed that the disputants were spiteful or revengeful, he would report the quarrel to the father occupying the second place after the superior and prepare the ground for their mutual reconciliation before sundown. But if they continued obstinate, they would either be punished by being deprived of food until they were reconciled or else expelled from the monastery. And so, you know, the, again, interesting, you know, the, we see the movement there that one will take the role of penitent before them. Uh, and, you know, it's, Interesting how we can get swept up into that. There can be even a delight, a morbid delight when we see two people fighting. It's like when we see people actually fighting physically, a crowd gathers. And because there is this morbid delight, nobody jumps in and tries to break it up or very few do, but they stand around and watch it. 
and uh, and that can happen in communities too. You know, kind of morbid delight at two members being at each other's throats. But here, what John saw was, you know, members resolving uh, to take this role to to bring an end to it as swiftly as possible. And so, taking the role of penitent. And, and, and then if that doesn't work to go to, the, as it were, the second in command, sub-priorist or sub-prior uh, in a monastery, uh, in order that they might deal with it more directly so that before sundown, that the animosity towards the other would uh, be overcome and charity would be restored, that the day wouldn't be allowed to end uh, unless that took place. And uh, certainly, again, I think that's a good thing within families or between spouses uh, or among friends, you know, not to let, you know, the sun go down uh, where there is that burden of a fight, you know, not lingering in, you know, that kind of silence, you know, that is still filled with anger, but to, to seek to overcome it. And, but I thought the, the language here was interesting, prepare the ground for mutual reconciliation. And so the person even with a greater responsibility is going to seek to lay a foundation where they can be reconciled, you know, not simply to punish them, but ha they have to do something more to overcome whatever obstacle or impediment there is to charity between the two of them. Uh, and But if that fails, then indeed a kind of punishment or penance, you know, that they are given something that can, again, awaken their own conscience, humble them, and again, in mind and body, or soften the heart. And so if all the counsel and the witness of another, other members of the community doesn't do it, then to give them a, a spiritual exercise that will humble them internally, and again, in mind and body, with the hope that it will be resolved. And it's only, again, where it's obstinate, you know, where they're entrenched that, uh, that they would be asked to leave the monastery. Uh, because as we said, you know, without it being something that's dealt with, the, this kind of illness can then spread to the rest of the community. Ashley put up uh, a couple comments here. Uh, the public confession of the past wrongs in the earlier paragraphs reminds me of, of, of the general judgment. Yeah, everything will be shouted from the housetops at some point. So that's going to be the reality in any case. And so to let go of our shame sooner than later is the better thing. And in contemplating that, at first there's a, a real gripping fear that all will be made clear, nothing will be hidden. Since sin is an absence, an act contrary to reality, that wounds both us and the body, that is the body of Christ, this type of confession, which we will all endure in the end, can, can't not be healing and ultimately freeing. Right, so what is true when we come before God uh, as something that strips away and purifies of sin cannot help but be something that is purifying now, the free revelation of, of that sin. 
But then an understanding of the sacramental life, who and where I'm made for, and if one has a penitential disposition, it's less about standing in shame or fear, and more like we would stand before everyone with a deep recognition, humility, admission of having been who we are not and did not want to be. Right. You know, I think where there are these sensibilities that have been formed and uh, that there is a kind of humility in the spirit of obedience, then seeking Christ out and the forgiveness offered within uh, the, the confessional, having that, as she says, penitential disposition provides for a lot. And I think, you know, the radical action that we see with that thief at the beginning of the evening was because he had not been formed at all. He had no disposition uh, of, uh, you know, that would, would bring about that healing. It had to be cultivated within him. So it was more like an emergency operation that the superior had to perform. Any other comments? A lot that is challenging to think about here, but I think so much that is beautiful and can be fruitful in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, and often in some simple ways too, I don't think we have to make this complex. I think in our day-to-day -day encounters with others or what's going through our mind and how we deal with the things that go through our mind can be addressed by, by this step. So that brings us to 8.30, believe it or not, uh, our sort of flies by. Uh, but there's some really beautiful stories coming up. And again, I look forward to going through them with you uh, because, it, it, you know, John has this really clear way of writing and approaching, always defining what he's talking about, whether it's the vice or the virtue, and then giving specific ways that it will manifest itself, good or bad. And But then he'll use multiple stories like this to really allow it to come alive for us. So it's not just an idea in the mind. We see it being enacted in an individual's life and what it looks like. And similar to the Evergetinos, I think that makes the teaching all the more fruitful. You know, it's not just an idea that this is something for us to emulate in one way or another, not just to admire. Although granted, it's hard to admire some of this, I think maybe be frightened of uh, when you first hear it. Okay, so why don't we close there for the evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. <laughs>